Hello, everyone, and welcome to the House View monthly live stream. It is Thursday, May 4th, 2023. I'm Anthony Pastore, head of broadcast communications for UBS. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I am joined by two of my great colleagues from the UBS Chief Investment Office, David Lefkowitz, and uh, remotely, we have Tom McLaughlin joining us. And by the way, before we get into our conversation, as we always say, we appreciate hearing from you our live audience. So if you do have a question on your screen, there's an ask a question button over to the right. Just click that and you can type in a question and you can engage with us right here in the studio uh, when we open it up during today's discussion, which will be in just a few minutes. Um, in the meantime, let's dive right in. Uh, there's a lot going on that we need to talk about. David, I'd like to start with you. As we sit here, we had the conclusion of the Fed's two-day meeting yesterday. We know now they raised 25 basis points. Uh, now we're in a range of five to five and a quarter. Here, here's the thing, though. Um, the increase probably came as a little bit of, as little surprise to most investors and economists alike. But I want to get your read because there was so much that came out of not only the statement, but Jay Powell's press conference afterwards. What did you take away from it? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Yeah, I think I think just the fact that we had a fairly muted reaction in the markets uh, is is probably the best evidence that this was largely expected by, uh, by market participants. The other big thing that, that really changed was a change in the statement language, and, and Powell talked about this further in, in his remarks in the press conference, that, um, that, the, that the, it looks like they're probably done raising rates. I, I would say probably the best way to describe it is now probably a higher bar to raising rates further from here. And whereas in the past, you know, the past year or so, it was very clear the Fed was always was going to continually be raising interest rates. Now he's really underscoring it's a meeting by meeting decision. It's going to be uh, very data dependent. So that's definitely a change. And the market is, you know, interpreting that as, as we're probably it's possible that we're done uh, with the rate hikes. Right. The other thing he talked about, um, he talked about how inflation is coming down, but it's still much higher than their target. And, and as a result, that probably means that, uh, you know, interest rates have to stay at these pretty elevated levels for some period of time. Um, you know, clearly he talked also about the banking stress. Um, and he, he mentioned that the, the situation has improved uh, since early March. And I think it's important, you know, the Fed gets a lot of data uh, on what's happening in real time in the banking system. So I think that's encouraging to hear. And that's certainly what we've heard from companies as well, uh, the banks themselves, that, that things have improved. Um, and, and also just underscoring that whatever shortcomings led to, regulatory shortcomings that led to some of the, the stresses that, that we saw, and we're frankly still seeing, uh, that the Fed is going to take corrective action to its regulatory and supervisory framework. Uh, that's going to be rolled out. It's going to take months and years for a lot of that stuff to be rolled out, but there clearly are lessons learned. So, you know, big takeaway, I would say, is, is really the fact that there's now probably a, a higher bar to raising interest rates further from here, and, and it's certainly possible that the Fed is, is done. Right. And, and, and additionally, we do have a lot of economic data, important economic data that Powell and the Fed are going to be watching. We've got uh, inflation data next week with CPI. We have jobs numbers coming out tomorrow. Um, so there's a lot that the Fed is going to be watching here after, of course, two days in this statement in the press conference. Tom McLaughlin, let me, let me ask you just kind of a follow-up here. Anything that's jumped out at you, uh, you know, from the Fed, from the statement, from the press conference, anything to add to what David was talking about? Yeah, no, I think David's got it right. Um, I think the chair is trying to thread the needle at this point. Uh, on the one hand, he's saying uh, that he sees the impact from a tighter monetary policy 
being transmitted through the economy, but that he's also saying that the process has, quote, a long way to go. Um, so you got two different messages coming, but I think David's got it right in terms of basically saying that there's more likelihood of a pause now. I think the removal of the language that, um, and I'm quoting, I think, additional policy firming may be appropriate. They pulled that language out. That's critical. Uh, and it basically makes the notion of this data that you just mentioned, the dependency on that data for the next three or four weeks. I mean, I know the Fed always says it's data dependent, but in the next three or four weeks, it'll take on uh, real great importance. And given the volatility in the banking sector, the probability of a pause, I think, in June has also risen for that reason. Right. Yeah, he added, I, I will say to what you just said, Tom, the statement said in determining the extent to which it may be appropriate. So that slight change in language is where we're sitting here today versus lot. what he yeah. said in March. Right. Yeah, it means a lot. It yeah. does. Yeah. Even a comma can mean a lot uh, in a Fed statement. Right. Um, so. You know, I, I think probably this raises the question, Tom. I think a lot of our clients right now are looking, you know, for guidance as to where monetary policy is headed, which we're talking about here. But more importantly, I think how the markets might behave moving forward, especially now that we've gotten past the May meeting, which we were anticipating for weeks to come. We've got a better sense of where they're going. How do you think markets will react from here? Well, the market forwards now are showing expectations for an interest rate cut. The implied policy rate based on those market forwards is roughly 4% by the end of the calendar year. This doesn't really square with what Powell was saying during his press conference, where he was remarkably specific for a Fed chair. Um, he effectively was telling us that a pause is not a pivot. But you know, he repeatedly returned to this whole notion of labor market conditions, again, which you, know, you had brought up. Um, and he acknowledged that they're softening a bit. Uh, we're in a the position now we're seeing the quits rate is declining. Uh, we're seeing the ratio of available jobs to unemployed workers is declining as well. So it looks as if the lag effect of the actions taken thus far by the Fed are beginning to have that effect. You know, um, the counter argument and it's gaining more support in the past few weeks is that the lag effect is starting to take hold faster than the Fed thinks. And I think that's the tension that we're seeing in the market right now. That on the one hand, you've got the Fed and the Federal Open Market Committee basically saying, OK, you know, we may or may not go ahead and raise in June, you know, but kind of letting us know that they're probably not going to do it. Whereas the market is saying, listen, you know, you can see the economy contracting in front of our eyes. You're going to be forced to go ahead and and basically cut earlier than you're saying. I think from our perspective, I think, you know, the Fed is so focused on not repeating the mistake that they, the Fed did in 1980, where they took the foot off the brake too soon that it still is more likely that they will wait a little bit longer than, than the market is suggesting right now before they go ahead and cut. But effectively, what we're also seeing on the yield curve is that the longer end is responding, and it re responded again this morning in terms of basically lower yields. So I think directionally, I think the market is suggesting that longer term, we're going to see that economic contraction. We're going to see the Fed go ahead and, and begin to cut, maybe not the, at the end of this year, but certainly into next year. And at that point, you're going to basically see that long end perform better on a total return basis. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at what you know, Powell is talking about, he, has, he is, of course, talking about the labor market. He's saying it's extraordinarily tight. And it seems almost uh, like we're at a point where we may not even see uh, that 2% inflation target by the Fed being close to be met. Uh, certainly not in the next, you know, I don't know, six months to a year. I guess it's all up for grabs. But, David, let me pivot to you. Same question that I'm asking Tom, but specifically, I mean, it looks like markets are kind of have maybe priced in. I think it's cutting pricing and cuts before the end of the year. And you can tell me if that's right or wrong. Yep. But if that's the case, what's the CIO view about the likelihood of where specifically equity markets are headed? 
Yeah, so uh, you know, our, our view on the, on the equity market is it's, you know, at, at this point, I think the Fed is becoming a little bit less important. And, and as Tom mentioned, uh, it's going to be more about inflation coming down and, and things like that. Um, but look, I, so our, our view on, on equities overall is that the recession risk, look, I think we have to be frank, the recession risks are higher than normal, right? We've got, mm -hmm. we've got an, the yield curve's been inverted for, on a sustainable basis now, almost a year. Um, the banks are tightening uh, credit availability, and it looks like uh, that's just going to increase because of what we saw from the banking stress in March. Um, and, uh, and inflation is still uh, pretty high. So that means the Fed you know, probably can't cut rates to come to the rescue of the markets uh, and the economy. So I think we just have to recognize that. Um, so I think what's, what's probably, yeah, I think the best way to think about this is pick your spots, right, when it comes to equities. In other words, uh, we don't know for sure what's gonna happen. Nobody has a crystal ball. Uh, but if, if the economy has a soft landing, you know, we think there's probably 10% upside in, in U.S. equities. Um, but on the other hand, if the economy does slip into recession, there's probably 15 to 20% downside. So that leaves us a little bit cautious. Um, and, uh, and, and our price target on the S&P 500 implies about 5 or 6% downside uh, by the end of this year. So I think you want to recognize that it's, it's a set of conditions that are, uh, you know, in the past have... have typically led to some difficult economic conditions. I think you want to recognize that. And, but pick your spots. You know, if the market pulls back 5 or 10%, that could be an opportunity to, to, to add to some positions. Um, again, pick your spots. Yeah. Thanks, David. Uh, you know, and just, just to kind of put a, a cap in this for the moment, I mean, if you looked at what happened yesterday, especially in the energy markets, mm -hmm. crude oil slid. That's uh, maybe a sign that those markets think that a recession might be on the way, even though Powell was sort of backing off but saying a mild one could happen before the end of the year. And, you know, the bond market, as you said, Tom, is kind of betting that the, the, the bank's next move is going to be to cut rates. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. But let's, let's put the Fed aside for a minute. Tom, let me, let me bring up the other big sort of elephant topic in the room right now, which is this looming debt ceiling that's going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, most recently, Secretary, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen updated her X date for the debt ceiling, you know, to June 1st, which I think came a little bit earlier than some were maybe expecting. What can you tell us about that new forecast from the secretary? And how do you think this might affect negotiations? As we know, Biden, President Biden's going into a meeting next week on the 9th with a number of House and Senate leaders I don't know how that's going to go. It doesn't seem like bipartisanship is on the table. What do you think is going on? Yeah, bipartisanship has been notable for its absence right now uh, in Washington. You know, I think the announcement from Yellen was notable for its uncertainty, frankly. Um, I think part of that is because the receipts of the federal government have been really difficult to forecast. Um, part of that is because you've got some res residents of some counties in the United States that were given more time to file. Um, but what was interesting, I was looking at the Treasury General account statements, which come out uh, each evening. And what we saw on Friday was that the cash on deposit in the operating account for the federal government was hovering around $300 billion. What happened on Monday and Tuesday was frankly astonishing. We actually saw a 30% decline in two days in the balance of the Treasury General account, which I guess is, again, is the operating account. So we effectively depleted $100 billion in the, in the course of you know, 48 hours. Um, you know, I think it's plausible based on corporate tax filings due on June 15th and the ability of the Fed to not reinvest some maturing securities um, on the 1st of July, that if you make it 
to you know June 15th, you can probably push this out towards the end of July. The problem uh, for uh, Secretary Yellen is that she can't cut it that close. Uh, we're in a position where it's going to be very, very tight um, in terms of cash flows in that first week of June. And I think she looked at that and looked at the volatility in the, in the Treasury account and said, you know, frankly, I can't afford to go ahead and and basically, you know, run this down to what is a very small amount of money. We're talking about a few billion dollars, but it's a very small amount of money in the size of the of the uh, of the federal budget. So she's in a tough spot. Uh, and she didn't want to wait. Now, as you point out, uh, the president has invited the Speaker of the House to the White House um, on May 9th. That's when negotiations will begin. And you know what's interesting is I think um, one of the important takeaways is that we come back to this debt ceiling every 18 to 24 months. And what's happening is that the debt ceiling negotiations are becoming the principal means by which the two parties are really talking together about what the budget's going to look like. You know, normally, historically, traditionally, you would have these two parties come together and basically hammer out a budget in the appropriation process. And it's not happening now. So given the fact that there's such a distance between the Republicans and the Democrats on Capitol Hill, the debt ceiling negotiation has taken on this idea of really talking about how do we control the deficit and doing so with a sort of Damocles over their head. The market doesn't like it. Uh, it's certainly not a proper way to run a railroad, but but we're in a position where that this particular debt ceiling negotiation is not this is not a one-off, as I think everybody realizes. This will be a recurring event. And the reason it's becoming a recurring event is that we're in a position where this is the thing that drives the two parties to the negotiating table. There is a possibility, by the way, um, that we're seeing a little bit more talk about trying to extend the negotiations uh, and extend the debt ceiling deadline, if you will, by giving a temporary suspension for a few weeks or a couple of months, pushing it out to September. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. We won't know about it until after the 9th of May when uh, the speaker and the president get together. Right. And yeah. And, and obviously there, the, the question next would be, and I'll stay with you for a minute, Tom, the investment implications. And just to kind of give a little bit of a history lesson, back in 2011, when there was another looming debt ceiling, then Vice President Joe Biden went into negotiations with Eric Cantor, who was the former House Majority Leader. He was deputized by House Majority Speaker um, John Boehner. They came really close, but they met it right at the deadline. But even with that happening, the U.S. credit rating dipped, uh, markets were, you know, became volatile. So what happens if we don't actually come to some kind of an agreement next week? How are the markets going to take that as we're getting closer and closer to June 1st? There seems to be a lot that is at risk here. So what do you think will be the market implications here, Tom? Yeah, the, the, the market is at risk. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is that the short-term Treasury market always reacts first in these kind of uh, situations. So we're still you know, a little bit less than a month away from the deadline that Secretary Yellen has given us. Um, and the Treasury, the short-term Treasury market has already begun to react. You know, We've seen the, the shortest end of the curve steepen up. We've also, interestingly enough, seen the longer end basically decline a bit. So one of the things that we're expecting is that you're going to see, perhaps in the short term, a bit more inversion, where you got the short end rising, the long end kind of declining. Um, but over time, uh, you'll see it hit the equity market. And, and I, I think I'll, I'll defer to David on this. He and I have talked about this for, at this point, years, David. Um, I think the equity market reacts more slowly. They also take into account broader macroeconomic factors. But I think from the perspective of the government bond market, you're already seeing that reaction. Bid ask spreads had widened out right after the secretary gave the announcement. You're seeing higher uh, 
short-term rates, uh, again, very short-term rates, and there's going to be a little bit of instability, and you'll probably see some volatility in that very, very short-end market with treasury bills coming due in May of June. Great. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, D David, I'll, I'll ask you then. As Tom said, with the equity side, if we get further negotiations or we don't, what do you think will be the equity market reaction? Yeah, I, I have to confess, I, I'm not too worried about equities mm -hmm. I, I, from, from this perspective. And um, look, I, I mean, if, if we have an outright default, I mean, that's a whole other story, right? But I, I still think that's a, a pretty low probability. But I think, you know, everyone oftentimes looks at 2011 and talks about all the volatility we saw, but there's been so many, you know, Tom can correct me, there's probably been over 80 times that we've raised the debt ceiling and we've oftentimes gone close to the, the last minute and we don't see those types of equity mm -hmm. market reactions. So what was different about 2011 was that at the same time, the Eurozone crisis was really gathering momentum. And uh, in the 2011 episode, the S&P 500 was down 17% uh, peak to trough. Um, what's interesting is that the Eurozone, the European banks were down even more. They were down 25% over that same period. And I think that's really telling. I think what, uh, what was really a bigger influence at that time, potentially, was the fact that the Eurozone crisis was really gathering a lot of momentum. And, and just a final point on this, we have the debt ceiling issues in 2013. The, the S&P 500 never experienced more than a 6% sell-off. And for the calendar year, the market was up 32%, right? So I, I just think it's important uh, to keep that in perspective. And, and I think something that Tom mentioned, look, if, if there are broader concerns about the economy, and the macro conditions. And, and there may be reason to be concerned about them, right? We talked about some of the risks and, and some of the opportunities on the economy. Um, but if people start worrying about the economy, and then, then you could definitely see the debt ceiling negotiations become, I'd say, more of a downside catalyst to, uh, to equities. Yeah. And it, what, what I find really interesting is, you know, when we talk about this, it seems like it's almost become second to the bigger headlines, which I think are the regional banks. Because if you look at the way the markets react, every time there's even a, a one headline about one small regional bank, they react pretty dramatically. Um, and those headlines keep coming um, without going into sp uh, specific names. You know, anybody watching this program here today will know what we're talking about. What's your take on this situation, David, with the regional banks? I mean, it, and we keep hearing from Yellen and Powell and others that the, the banking you know, uh, sector in the United States and globally is secure and well-funded, but then the headlines feel otherwise. So what do you say to that? Yeah, look, I mean, it's clear, you know, we've, we've seen continued volatility in, uh, in the banking sector and, and with the regional banks uh, in particular. Um, and obviously we've seen three fairly large regional banks have already failed. Um, and you know, I think it's a couple things to bear in mind. I mean, first of all, one of the one of the sort of I don't know if it's a problem or a feature, but a feature of a bank is that confidence is key, mm -hmm. right? If if depositors or investors lose confidence in an institution, this can become a self fulfilling prophecy. So I, I think that's 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 what makes the banks very different than any other company, for instance. Um, you know, usually you don't care, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond going bankrupt, you don't really care about that. But, um, but when you're worried about the safety and soundness of your deposits, that's, that's a much bigger deal. Mm -hmm. So look, I, I think the banks, you know, when we analyze the banks, the banks are in, in, in whole, they're, they're fine, right? They have sufficient capital, they have, there's only 
a very small handful of banks that have similar situations that the failed banks do. And by the way, it's not like these banks were insolvent. It's just they became unviable when people lost confidence in them, right? So I go back to this confidence uh, uh, concept again. So uh, yeah, there might be a, a few handful of, small, of smaller banks that have similar problems. I'm clear we're seeing that uh, happen today. Uh, and look, it's, it's possible that the government may need to institute some sort of blanket deposit insurance or raise the caps on deposit, uh, deposit insurance in order to uh, restore that confidence. Uh, but uh, that's, and so that's maybe what's needed. But right. I would say overall the system is, is, in a, is, is very safe and sound, and that's what Powell keeps on talking about. It's just that we've got to restore some of that confidence. Mm -hmm. And the government did step in a couple of weeks ago and made some changes there for deposits, insurance, and you know, I mean, that gave a little bit of confidence, but then these banks still keep hitting the headlines. And so yeah. we're yeah. wondering, you know, what's next? Right. I think yeah, part of it, I think, Anthony, is that the, uh, under the law, Congress will have to go ahead and increase the deposit limit, the deposit insurance limit. Uh, until they do that, uh, banks effectively have to basically be uh, acquired and determined to be insolvent. And then the, the state and the federal regulars have to come in in order to basically go above the 250. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in terms of what David was suggesting, um, I think part of the reason is uh, that the banks are having problems, or some of the banks are having problems that are put, is that the speed with which the Fed acted uh, put the risk managers at the various banks in a, in a difficult position because they had too much of their fixed income securities as being held to maturity. And they basically went too long and they had too many basic mortgages, mortgages out there with customers at low rates. So what, but the speed with which the Fed has reacted in terms of monetary policy has basically aggravated them aggravated the crisis. And there's another reason, frankly, going back to the top of the conversation, that it's a little bit more likely than not that we're going to see a pause in June. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and let's continue on, well, not specifically with the banks, but, you know, maybe financials maybe not looking so good right now. Right. But how are things looking maybe for, you know, the broader equity group? Maybe you can give us a little bit of a recap of uh, first quarter earnings season, how that went, and, you know, if there's any maybe sector-wise, any specific winners or maybe some losers in there that you're being cautious about right now, David. Yeah. So look, I would say the earnings season's been pretty decent, actually. I would say it's 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 been better than the last few earnings seasons that we've we've had. Um, we're seeing more companies are beating estimates, and the beats are by a larger magnitude. The other thing we're also seeing is that the forward estimates are are actually holding up better than what we saw over in the in the last two or three earnings seasons. So it's, it's been better. Now, in terms of some of the specific end markets, as you were talking about, Anthony, um, there's been a little bit of a change where we had seen some weakness in areas like cloud, uh, digital advertising, and housing. All three of those look like there's, there's incremental stability and, and in some cases looking like you know, significant improvement. That's, that's, a, that's definitely a change. Now it's not it's not all of a it's not all good. I mean, we still have you know some people are calling this a freight recession, so there's still not a lot of demand for goods. And you've heard from from a number of the transportation companies that have talked about that. It looks like there's some weakness in some of the more cyclical parts of uh, of hardware, tech hardware. Uh, so it's 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 a mixed picture, but I would say this is definitely a better earning season than the last few. And it looks like some of the market segments that had been experiencing some weakness are, are now seeing some more stability. And then, and I guess the last part, everybody's talking about AI, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that is, I mean, it is across the board. Everything, like every, everywhere. Every company, <laughs> almost every, I mean, the mentions of 
AI are just through the roof if you look at uh, transcripts and things like that from conference calls, and which is not surprising. Obviously, a lot of a lot of excitement about about that opportunity. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of conversation there about the investable, you know, sort of uh, you know access to AI that there is that exists maybe on its own or through other companies. So right. something certainly to be uh, for our yeah. viewers to talk to their advisors about for sure. One one other thing though, uh, just our, our outlook for the rest of the year. So you know things are looking a little bit better on earnings. But uh, you know, I do think all the things we talked about at, at the early part of the show, you know, we still have tighter financial conditions. Banks are tightening on, on capital. The Fed's not going to cut likely anytime soon. That, all that means is that there's probably going to be incremental pressure on earnings going forward. So we don't think we're out of the woods on earnings in terms of earnings growth. Mm -hmm. We're still looking, our earnings estimates are about 5% lower than the consensus. Uh, but certainly the first quarter is, is, is shaping up to be a little bit better than what we saw the last few quarters. That's great. Um, and before we continue uh, on here, I just want to remind our audience, if you do want to ask a question, we're starting to get some here in the room, uh, make sure to click that Ask a Question button on your screen for Tom and David. Um, as we are just kind of positioning ourselves to get into the Q&A portion, really quickly, and Tom, I'll ask you first, as we're about halfway through the year here, what are there any updates to portfolio positioning, particularly on the fixed income side? Yeah, we, we recommended a uh, barbell approach some months ago, and I think that still works. There's ample yield available on the short end. Uh, the long end is going to respond to the prospect of Fed cutting whenever it gets to that point later this year, early next. Uh, and as a consequence, um, I think that barbell approach where you basically have a certain percentage of a fixed income allocation in the very short end and then basically moving further out on the curve for the other end, I think that still works. One note of caution is the corporate high yield market. Um, when you think about high yield corporate bonds, they tend to have a reasonably high correlation to equities. So one thing I've often said to our advisors and clients is just be a little bit careful about trying to diversify against equity by using high yield bonds, because again, that correlation is rather high, which is one reason why if you're in that corporate space, you want to basically be in higher quality investment grade corporate bonds rather than the high yield space today as we go through this whole debt ceiling for the next month or so. Great. Thank you, Tom. David, same thing. Any, any you know, changes to your positioning recommendations given everything? Yeah. Not, you know, so you know, given, given the outlook that we talked about, and I do think you want to be, you know, a little bit more defensive in in terms of your equity allocation. So that's why we're we're overweight uh, two defensive sectors, utilities and consumer staples. You know, if we do see some downside in markets, these areas will will hold up better than than other market segments. We don't want to be completely in the bunker. Uh, so we also like industrials. There are some interesting things happening in industrials. Uh, obviously, there's going to be heightened defense spending uh, over the coming years, very, very likely. Uh, plus, there are beneficiaries of the infrastructure spending. There are beneficiaries of the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of uh, investments in renewables and, and alternative forms of energy. Um, and, and look, and there still is, uh, there still, you know, there still is a chance and there still is a probability that the economy will sail through this uh, and will continue to grow. And so that gives you that upside exposure. You know, one, one comment on, on tech, I mean, obviously tech, uh, you know, the mega caps have been, you know, really dominant this year in terms of market performance. In fact, if you look outside of the top seven companies, the market's only up fractionally this year, uh, only up, you know, one or two percent rather than the, the, the eight or nine percent that, that it, it was up in, you know, as of yesterday. Um, and, you know, we would recommend looking beyond some of those big cap tech companies. And, yeah, I think there's a couple perspectives here. You know, one is that um, if we have a soft landing, 
you probably want to own the cheap cyclicals, right? Mm -hmm. the, cheap, the cheap areas of the market are financials and energy right now. If we have a soft landing, those will probably be some of the market leaders. And if we end up being in a harder landing, well, I, I just think valuations are pretty elevated for these mega cap growth companies. And uh, they don't account for some of the earnings risks that we're going to see if we do end up in a harder landing. So I think you want to be a little bit careful with the exposure on the growth side. So we have a, a slight preference for value stocks. It's not big, um, but, but I do think it's important to bear in mind there are some risks in the growth complex to be aware of. Great. Thank you, David. All right. So let's, let's turn our attention to some audience questions that have come in. Tom, uh, let me see the first one here for you. Uh, given some of the recent performance and the truth is, yeah, munis have had a, pr a pretty good run, especially in the first quarter. The question asks, how should one be thinking about municipal bonds in, uh, in the context of their own portfolio? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. I think uh, municipal bonds, particularly higher quality municipal bonds, um, could be a, a beneficiary of any flight to safety or at least a flight to familiarity. Uh, the, tech, uh, the taxable equivalent yields available on longer term munis uh, uh, look very, very attractive relative to both treasuries and corporate uh, securities. So my recommend, recommendation there is, again, you know, the, that barbell, you could, uh, we, as we discussed before, you could do a short-term treasury and a longer-term treasury and barbell it that way. You could also do the short-term treasury and use long-term munis as well as an alternative. Uh, again, the, the uh, taxable equivalent yield on municipals beyond about 12 years, so you want to get to that longer end of the muni curve, uh, is attractive relative to both treasuries and corporates. Great, thank you, Tom. Yeah, I mean, looking at all states, there, a lot of them are in a very strong fiscal position, so it's a, a good time for munis. Thank you, Tom. Um, another question here for, uh, for you, David. Uh, one of the questions is outside of the US, do you have any recommendations? You may be particularly talking about emerging markets, uh, equities, you know, what, what's your preference there these days, particularly with EM equities? Yeah, so that, that's an area where we're a little bit more optimistic, Anthony, and um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, so especially on emerging markets where we, we, we have a most preferred view. Um, now first of all, we just talked about the Fed, right? And the Fed is probably done raising interest rates or, or certainly very close to being done if it's not. Um, and and that, what that means is that the dollar is probably going to continue to weaken because it, and we've already seen some of that happening. Um, typically when the dollar weakens, that tends to be favorable for ex-US markets and, and especially emerging markets. Um, especially in, in the context that the dollar is pretty expensive at the moment. So, um, so that's one, one aspect. The other, obviously, look, you, you can't talk about uh, emerging markets without talking about China. And, and China, you know, we know it was sort of very delayed in their response to COVID. There was, you know, the lockdowns for, for a number of years. The, the reopening, though, is clearly happening. We're seeing it in, uh, in terms of travel, in terms of people going to Macau. Um, it's, we're seeing less of it on things like goods, but it's clearly happening. And, uh, and so we're probably going to see an acceleration in earnings growth in China, uh, whereas we were, we're still talking about some headwinds for earnings here in the United States. Plus, China is easing policy across a whole host of dimensions, housing policy, tech policy, social policy, COVID policy, which we talked about. So you know, I think the, the simple way of putting it is uh, you can buy EM equities that are trading at an average valuation relative to their history, but their earnings are well below normal, whereas US markets are trading at valuations that are higher than average on higher than average, on higher than normal earnings, right? So, so we think the risk reward trade-off is just more attractive in emerging markets. Again, really the, the China reopening is a, is a key part of that. Yeah. And you saw the least 
preferred on U.S. equities as of right now That's and correct. CIO. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you, David. Uh, looks like we have time for maybe one more question. And Tom, I think this is, a, this is an important one. Kind of back to the debt ceiling. Uh, the question asks, how should we be thinking about the priority of Social Security payments should the U.S. default on its debt? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. The, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the prioritization of various expenditures in the event uh, we hit the deadline, the debt ceiling deadline, and then we go over. I am less confident that we will be able to prioritize expenditures for uh, source, for things other than the payment of debt. And the reason for that is that there's, there's not a lot of confidence that the Treasury payment uh, system, the invoice payment system, is capable of basically prioritizing one type of expenditure, whether it be Social Security or Medicare reimbursements or veterans benefits, over others. Uh, it's just not built that way. Uh, part of that is because of the sheer volume of payments that go out from the federal government on a daily basis. It's, it's conceivable that the Fed, if we get to the point where we're near a, a solution or a resolution to the debt ceiling, uh, that they can go ahead and make whatever adjustments they can to accommodate the payment of short-term treasury obligations. But the ability to go ahead and expand that to a larger category, including Social Security, is more problematic. Uh, it does have a really profound impact, however, because most Social Security recipients spend the Social Security check almost immediately for living expenses. And as a consequence, that will basically not having those, uh, those transfer payments coming through will basically have less liquidity in the system. You'll have more people holding back both on a sentiment basis on a reality, and as well as a reality basis. They're going to spend less, and that's going to basically be bad for the economy. So I don't think, even though there's been a lot of talk about it, I don't have a lot of confidence that the Fed's going to be able to say, we'll, we'll go ahead and prioritize debt and Social Security, but we're not going to go ahead and pay veterans benefits, active duty military or Medicare reimbursements to hospitals. That kind of distinction is, is difficult to foresee. Uh, and as a consequence, if we do go over the debt ceiling, it's, it's possible that Social Security checks would be delayed, and that does have a negative impact on the economy. Yeah, tough stuff for, uh, for those who are, are rely on those checks to pay their bills yep. and do whatever they need to do with it. But yeah, thank you for that uh, sobering answer, Tom. But uh, you know, again, we'll be taking a look at what's happening next week on the 9th with the negotiations with the president. And so we'll keep our fingers crossed that they come to some kind of uh, agreement or at least moving to further negotiations. And that would be something we could certainly sink our teeth into. Anyway, I think we are uh, fortunately out of time. Uh, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us. I also want to thank David and Tom for joining me for this great conversation. As you know, we're here every single month, the first Thursday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure to come back and join us the next time we're going to be here, which is Thursday, June 1st. Until then, we will continue to keep you updated with our latest views through the House View publications from the Chief Investment Office, including our alerts, our blogs, videos, podcasts, and a whole lot more. And as always, we do encourage you to continue this conversation with your UBS financial advisor. From New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways 
days and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. Thank you.